Great morning, everybody. Um, so Habakkuk chapter 1 is on page 940, I think, in your pew Bibles. If you want to have it open, that would be great. Um, and I need to start by saying I had this, uh, I had this sermon written roughly by Wednesday, uh, Tuesday night when we, we were going away on a staff retreat on Wednesday morning. Um, and really, as the week unfolded and, and the kind of horrid news kept on coming from Israel and Gaza... I was wrestling with how to, how to preach this Sunday, um, particularly given the passage we've just had read, uh, which if, if you had the images of, of the initial attack on Sunday and, and various things going on this week, there are some eerie parallels with what we've seen this week and what we read here. Um, and so... I have rewritten things, um, which means thing, this morning's a bit different. It's a little bit heavier than, than I might normally try to be. Uh, and in, in a sense, I don't make an apology for that because these things are really serious. Um, so so I've, I've done that for two reasons. One is that I think it's really important that our teaching and preaching here at church speaks into our lives and into the world that we all live in. And when something like that dominates the news, it's important to go, well, what, what, what do we do with that? How does God speak into this? And then uh, the other is that the, the, I, I didn't want there to be these overlaps with Habakkuk 1. And you're all thinking, is this what's going on in Israel today? And we just kind of leave it as the elephant in the room. And I, do you see what I mean? Uh, it, needed, it needed outing. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping to do. And we're going to start with these uneasy parallels between Habakkuk 1 and what we see this, this week. And then we'll move on to kind of work out what these ancient words, how they apply to our lives as well as our world today. And I want to say as well that in doing this, in, in talking a little bit about Israel and Gaza, I'm not trying to make political statements, though theology and history, particularly in the Middle East, but actually in the world generally, are inextricably, inextricably linked with politics. Um, so it's difficult to, to even describe things going on without sounding political. Um, anyway, there we go. So what we're looking at in Habakkuk 1 today is... Unusually for um, Old Testament prophecy, it's not a kind of vision that Habakkuk has so much as a conversation. It's like he's recorded a conversation between himself, this, this, this prophet Habakkuk, who we know very little about, and God. Um, Habakkuk, you'll see in the first few verses, is complaining to God because there is evil and injustice in the land, in Israel. Um, where he is. That's verses 1 to 4. He's been praying about it. He sees it. He's, he's praying about it. He, he brings it to God and nothing happens. And he goes, Lord, not even the law, the Torah, which you gave us, your word, which is showing us how, not, not even that is having an impact. He says it's paralyzed. It's like the people are kind of numb to it. Uh, and so the whole of society is falling apart in pieces. And he says to God, why aren't you doing anything? What are you doing? We're meant to be the light to the nations. We're meant to be showing them how to live. And here we are, uh, saturated in evil and injustice. You're letting it carry on. Where are you, God? What are you doing? We may come back to that question. That's the first few verses. We'll come back to that question because I think as we hear Habakkuk, this prophet of God, kind of bring these words and these questions to God, well, many of us may think, well, I... I've got questions like that. What, God, what are you doing? Where are you, God? Why do you seem to do nothing? We'll come back to that because we, we recognize that question in ourselves, perhaps. Um, 
But notice first God's answer in verses 5 to 11, where he says in verse 5, Look, watch, be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if someone told you. And here is the shock bit for Habakkuk and perhaps for us, where he says, I'm going to do something amazing. What's he going to do? And he says, I'm raising up the Babylonians, this ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the earth and seize dwellings not their own. So, so Habakkuk's like, God, why are you doing anything? And, Habakkuk, and God says, well, my answer is I'm going to raise up this ruthless people. And then he goes on to describe these Babylonians. There are 20 ways he describes them, and they're all pretty relentless. And that's verses 5 to 11. He says, this, this people, these Babylonians, they are feared. They are dreaded. They're a law unto themselves. They're swift. They're fierce. They're bent on violence. They gather prisoners like sand. They are guilty people whose own strength is their God. So God's answer to the problem of evil within Israel was to raise up this brutal nation to occupy Israel and carry them off into exile. Can we pause there? Already some pretty big stuff going on. And we're already going, well, ha, what does this mean? I think there may be two things. Um, we'll get to Habakkuk's response, by the way, in a minute. His response to God's response, which is verse 12. And I think you'll be encouraged by that response. However, before we go on, I think there are two big things going on in my head, and perhaps in yours as well, as we hear this bit of Habakkuk. The first is, God is saying, he is raising up this nation to punish Israel. That's quite hard to hear. Maybe it doesn't fit with our view of God. Um, Habakkuk complains about evil, suffering, and unanswered prayer. And God's answer is, okay, this is what I'm going to do. It's going to get worse. And we might be tempted to think, well, where's the love of God in this? That's one big issue. Second issue, the other big issue, is we read God saying this in Habakkuk chapter 1. And then we see Last week, Hamas terrorists entering Israel and committing much the same sort of violence as these ancient Babylonians, swift, fierce, bent on violence, gathering prisoners. And the temptation would be to read this ancient prophecy into the contemporary situation and say, ah, well, Hamas are somehow the instruments of God. I think that would be a dangerous road to go down. And I don't think that is what Habakkuk is teaching us this morning. There are eerie parallels, yes. But we are not Habakkuk. And we don't know the mind of God in Israel today. But one thing we do learn from this ancient prophecy, by the way, I think I should have said, this was written probably 605 to 608 BC, so end of the 7th century before Christ. It's a long time ago. One thing we learn from this, these ancient words is that the land of Israel has been contested ground for at least, at least 3,000 years. Uh, these claims on the land go back before 1948, before Christian and uh, before American and British involvement, before Muslim and Christian involvement. The Israelites themselves, of course, originally were once conquerors of this land, driving out the Canaanites. Um, these Babylonians that are raised up in Habakkuk, they were followed by Persians, who were followed by Greeks, who were followed by Romans. And the Romans, of course, were around where Jesus was around. 
And of course, when we think about Jesus, radically, Jesus, who, let's remember this morning, was an Israelite, a Jew, he taught his Jewish followers that they were to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. And the good news of Jesus as it rippled out across the known world at the time, uh, broke down ethnic barriers. That was the kind of, the, the, the wonder of this gospel, this good news of Jesus. It, it broke down ethnic barriers. It went across borders indiscriminately. Um, this new Israel that was in Jesus somehow was spiritual rather than physical. And it centered on the God-man Jesus, his death for the forgiveness of sins, his uh, resurrection guaranteeing life, his teaching and his example for his followers to follow. So I say all that to say that a lot has changed since Habakkuk chapter 1 in the 7th century BC. And we've got to be careful in our application of it to Israel today. What we do know is that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Uh, That no doubt he weeps today for Jerusalem and that whole land. We know that Jesus died for all, for Israeli and Palestinian. And we know that we, as his followers, have a duty to pray for peace in Jerusalem and wherever it is possible to be peacemakers ourselves. And I don't know if you saw, but the leaders of the churches in Jerusalem have recently published a letter urging and calling Christians around the world to observe a day of prayer on Tuesday this week. And they, other Christian leaders are urging us to write to our governments, urging a humanitarian response to this crisis. Can we pause before I go on and back to Habakkuk? Can we pause and maybe just have some 30 seconds, a minute quiet, and we, let's, let's bring this to God and pray for peace. Amen. So we're going to get back into Habakkuk now. We're going to be thinking a little bit more about ourselves and and how this may apply directly um, to us. And to help us do that, what is notice what Habakkuk's response is first of all to this evil that he sees. And we've we've seen it briefly already. But I think I want to say to you this morning that if you can remember uh, one thing from Habakkuk chapter one, that is to observe how he deals with evil and suffering in his life and in the world around him. Because I think if we can capture something of what he does, that will be key to our own spiritual life and maturity and growth. So, did you see his response? Verse 2, the beginning, he's like, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you don't answer me? You don't save, you tolerate wrongdoing. Verse 3, he says, You make me look at injustice. He said, God, what are you doing? Why are you not answering my prayer? We've seen that already. And then God gives his response in verses 5 to 11, which we've seen is is shocking and surprising to us. But I want you to notice now verse 12, which is Habakkuk's response to God's response. 
people who know more about Hebrew than me uh, tell me that the words in verse 12, which begin, are you not, where he says, are you not everlasting God? Um, that, those, that particular Hebrew construction occurs 96 times in the Old Testament, and nearly all of them are part of a heated human argument, right? So it's, it's like there's an argument between two human beings. Let's, let's imagine that husbands and wives might occasionally argue, are you, are you not my husband? You know? Are you not meant to be faithful? Are you not like this? Are you? That's the tone. That's the kind of, that's the feel of verse 12. Habakkuk said, are you not everlasting? Are you not meant to, are you, aren't, I thought you were God. And that's your answer? That's the tone. It's angry, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? I thought you were meant to be this infinite God. What are you? That's the tone of verse 12. I wonder as you hear that, what you make of that. Habakkuk's response to this situation of evil and suffering is to bring his questions to God. Where are you, God? What are you doing? And even the angry and out of order ones. He's rude to God in verse 12. I thought you were meant to be infinite. So I wonder what you make of that. Here's the thing that hit me between the eyes this week. Let's notice that he is praying. He is going to God. He is not ranting on social media about this, nor is he complaining to his friends at the pub, though I can't imagine I'd do that in the pub. But, you know, he's not talking to other people about it, actually, right now. He's talking to God. He's bringing this to God. He's praying. He's not doing what I'm tempted to do, and maybe, maybe some of us are tempted to do, and he's not saying this, you know, there's evil and injustice. Well, I, I can't believe in a God who acts like this. I won't believe in a God that acts like this. A God of love wouldn't do that. He's not setting himself up as a higher authority than God and therefore dismissing God. And he's not also doing what I might be tempted to do and, and saying, well, I better just suck this up and say my thank yous and please and, and not anger God because otherwise he might kind of chuck me out. Nor is he sulking in the silence and keeping God, to, God at arm's length. All three of those responses I think I've done. And you might be tempted to do them sometimes as well. You know, unanswered prayer. We can walk away from God. We can just kind of keep our religious observance and hope that God's not too angry with us. Or we can just kind of sit in sulky silence and, and God becomes this numb unreality in our lives. No, Habakkuk brings it all to God. Just look at the second sentence in verse 12 where he's, he's asked this impertinent question. Are you not from everlasting? And then, my God, my Holy One. It's actually a very intimate acknowledgement of his relationship with God. He's confused. He's upset. He's angry. He's got questions. But the one thing he's never going to do is walk away from God. Um, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, describes this Habakkuk response as um, unconditionally faithful wrestling. So just notice what it isn't. It's not legalistic appeasing God. You know, I better pray so that God's on my side. It's not that. Nor is it what's quite popular maybe in our culture at the moment, which is this kind of authentic rejection of God. You know, I, can't, I can no longer believe in a God like this. It doesn't align with my principles. You know, I walk away from it. It's not either of those things. 
It's unconditional, faithful, wrestling with God. Say, I've got these questions, but the one thing I'm not going to do is walk away. Because where else can we go? That, it seems to me, is the key to Christian maturity in the face of evil and suffering in the world and in our own lives. And I've been inspired, actually, to see that kind of faith in people in this church. No doubt you can think of people around you who have displayed that faith in the suffering of their own lives. I spend some time, often, most weeks, with people in church, often because they're struggling in some way. And I see that faith. And God sees that faith. And they are examples, if I can coin a new word, of Habakkukian, Habakkukian, Habakkukian mature faith. Habakkukian. Unconditional faithful wrestling. That's what I see. That's what I see in Habakkuk. And I'd love to see more of it in myself and in our church. So if we can both wrestle with God, bring those angry questions, and have unwavering trust, which Habakkuk has, it's because actually we've grasped something of who God is. That is that we believe in a God who gives us himself in love. He rescues us from our own mess in the person of Jesus. He gets how we are when we're desperate. Um, in fact, like, let's be clear, Habakkuk's rude to God and it's not okay to be rude to God. We shouldn't kind of come away from this going, oh, it's okay, I can kind of rant and swear at God and he loves it. It's not that he's like wants us to do this, but he understands how we become when we are desperate. And so much so does he understand it that he, he puts whole Psalms and an entire book of Lamentations and Ecclesiastes and Job and this bit of Habakkuk. He puts it in our Bible and says, yeah, I get, I get what you're like. He understands it. Um, such is his compassion towards us. So in the face of evil in the world and suffering in our own lives, let's be more Habakkukian. Unconditional, faithful wrestling. Finally, let me just look more closely at God's response in 5 to 11, where God answers the problem of Israel by bringing judgment on Israel. This is hard. And that is when we get Habakkuk saying, are you not from everlasting? Are you God? Are you not God? What is this as an answer? God has said, I'm, I'm going to do something amazing in generation, such that if someone told you, you wouldn't believe them. And Habakkuk saying, yes, I don't believe you. At least I don't want to. And when we read Habakkuk's response to this judgment of God, maybe we can empathize with Habakkuk. And maybe some of us are thinking the same kind of thing. Is that, how could God do this? Is that the same God that we believe in today? First, let's just reflect on what Habakkuk is being taught by God here. Habakkuk is learning that God's time frame is not the same as his. So Habakkuk wants instant answers, and God is raising up a nation over generations. That's not instant. He's also learning that God's way of salvation isn't one that he, human Habakkuk, would come up with. Using ungodly, violent people. He's also learning that he doesn't always understand what God is doing. This doesn't seem like salvation to him. What are you doing, God? That's verses 12 to 17. 
So God's time frame isn't the same. His way of salvation isn't one we'd invent. And we don't always understand what God is doing. These are lessons that I would do well to learn. And I think probably all of us would. Habakkuk needed to learn it. Um, if we're unsure of this kind of this, this whole thing, we could talk. I, I was inspired hearing Claire on Monday talking about Uganda, and she mentioned the Ugandan martyrs from about 150 years ago, where some chiefs thought they were doing a really good thing by murdering and, and burning alive some Christians because they wanted to stamp out Christianity. Here we are, 100 years later, and loads of Christians in Uganda. The same thing you could talk to people in China, you could talk to Christians in Iran, you could talk to Christians in Korea, and you would see that God works in ways we wouldn't imagine. That humanly we're like, oh, well, that's not going to happen. And that seems stupid. No, God works in ways we wouldn't imagine, even through the suffering of God's people. And on a time scale we can't comprehend. So this answer from God was not what Habakkuk wanted or expected. And actually, even centuries, and I mean hundreds of years after Habakkuk, Faithful Jews would have looked at this and, and seen the devastation the Babylonians wrought and, and wondered what on earth God was doing. They still were wondering, centuries later, why, why God? But there was a plan. There was a plan. Come with me to Acts chapter 13. I was so excited when we saw this. Acts 13. Um, yeah, if you've got a Bible, have a look. It's Acts 13 and 38 to 41. And in Acts 13, Paul the Apostle is preaching um, and he's doing what he did in the synagogues which is going around and, and trying to convince people from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the Christ. And so he's rehearsing the history of Israel, showing them where Jesus fits in and how Jesus fulfills this. And then a really shocking thing happens. Uh, Acts 13 verse 41, he reaches for an Old Testament quotation and he brings, brings up Habakkuk 1 verse 5, which we've just been looking at. He quotes from Habakkuk 1.5, where God says, look in wonder, I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. So in Habakkuk, God was talking about this surprising violence and judgment coming to Israel through the Babylonians. And Paul, in Acts 13, applies that verse to the death of Jesus. Isn't that weird? And we go, ah. Oh, I knew Paul's understanding of the Old Testament wasn't quite right. He's, he's misunderstood. What's he up to? Well, let me try and lay it out for us because I think this is really quite astonishing. Um, there is a problem with the problem of evil and suffering. And that problem is our part in it. So the famous quotation from that Russian novelist, Alexander um, Solzhenitsyn, which I can never pronounce his name. You'll know this quotation. He puts it perfectly. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You see, when Habakkuk, in verses 1 to 4, called for an end to injustice... There was a sense in which God had to bring an end to the Israelites because they were part of the problem. The world does not consist of goodies and baddies. The world consists of human beings who are good and bad. And that, that is why 
The cross is absolutely genius and is the only solution. See, the judgment that God brought in part to Israel, prophesied in Habakkuk 1 verse 5, finds its complete fulfillment in the cross of Jesus as he took unexpected violence and injustice on himself from an occupying force, not the Babylonians this time, but the Romans. He took the very judgment of God to save other people from it. And that is why Paul says just before verse 41, that everyone who believes in Jesus is set free from their sin. Can you see, am I alone in being excited by this? No? The cross is the ultimate example of God's way being completely unexpected. It's human violence used by God to bring peace. It is judgment of God actually to set us free. It is death to bring life. It is the perfect and divine one made sin and carrying his own judgment. And it looked like the Romans had won, of course, just like it looked like the Babylonians had won. It looked like God's plan was completely mad. And frankly, if we were there at Tigan, this is rubbish. And 2,000 years later, here we are on a Sunday morning worshipping the one who died on that cross, singing of the lamb who was slain. See, none of us has answers to the tragedy of Israel and Palestine. None of us can fully understand why God can seem oblivious to our big questions and our desperate situations. And we may sometimes struggle to reconcile our understanding of God's love with what God seems to allow to happen. But we do know one thing, and that is that there are answers at the cross of Jesus. Does he love us? Yes. Look at the cross. Does he have a plan? Yes. Look at the cross. Does he, uh, can wrongdoing be dealt with? Yes. Look at the cross. Can I be forgiven? Yes. Look at the cross. Is there hope for Israel and Gaza? Yes. Look at the cross. Does God care? Yes. Look at the cross. And so we keep going, even in the midst of war, of strife, of evil in the world, of our own suffering, of huge questions that we continue to wrestle with. We keep going with unconditional faithful wrestling. And we keep going to the one who alone has the words of eternal life.